Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. So one thing that's constantly top of mind for our team here is user onboarding, and there's really two reasons for this. One, it's the only truly universal challenge all software products face. That is, how do we get our customers from signed up to successful to satisfied? And two, as our own senior manager of product education wrote on the Inside Intercom blog this week, onboarding should be an ongoing concern, a strategy that needs to adapt over time as your product and your business evolve. Getting onboarding right and keeping it right isn't easy, and it requires an ability to do four things well. Convert trialists into customers, help those new customers find their aha moment with your product, keep them coming back to experience it again and again, and finally, expanding how they use your product. We've had guests address each of these ideas sporadically over the past 100 plus episodes of Inside Intercom. So this week, we thought we'd pull together a few of our favorite insights on the onboarding levers you can pull. You'll hear from the likes of user onboard founder Samuel Hulick, Greylock Partners Growth Advisor in Residence Casey Winters, Adobe Creative Cloud Chief Product Officer Scott Belsky, Copy Hackers and AirStory co-founder Joanna Weeb, and Metro Mile VP of Product Sean Klaus. Each shares their experience overcoming a particular onboarding hurdle, from how to holistically define the scope of onboarding to where to focus first, nudging users to their aha moment, and more. If any of these guests' insights make your ears perk up, you can catch their full interviews by subscribing to our show on iTunes or wherever you go for podcasts these days. But now, let's get into it and talk user onboarding. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom. Making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Let's start at the beginning. When a lot of folks think about onboarding, the first thing that comes to mind are tooltips or maybe something like templates that are served up the very first time you log into a product. Yeah, those are a small part of this. But what does a comprehensive onboarding program really look like? Perhaps no one knows this better than Samuel Hulick. Samuel's the founder of useronboard.com, and if you've never been there, it's where he posts regular teardowns of onboarding flows for everyday products. Bitcoin, Dropbox, and PayPal are just a few of the most recent ones he's done. In a chat with my teammate Jeffrey Keating, here's Samuel's take on what successful onboarding really does look like. I think that a lot of times when you ask people what user onboarding is, they'll say that it's something like a tooltip tour or the introductory material or some help documents or something along those lines. And while those can be beneficial for getting people up to speed with your product, I really look at it less from the standpoint of uh, dragging people by the ear through activating features or having them click next 20 times in a tooltip tour and more along the lines of getting people up to speed with whatever they're the better version of themselves that they're hoping they will become with your product in their life and more reliably guiding more people toward that up and running very kind of cool and very capable state. So however that happens is is kind of immaterial to me. It's much more a question of or less a question of getting people from A to B in your app and more from A to B in their lives. I suppose if if onboarding kind of focuses less on kind of like activation and things like exclusively on signing up, what's the best way then to drag those users back and to make sure they keep coming back and back again? Yeah, yeah, the the user onboarding experience, I mean, it is really crucial to have a great first run experience and sign up experience activation. All of those, um, you know, the first five minutes in your product are really, really important for capitalizing on the attention that people are going to be providing you because uh, if you really don't make that great first impression, it's very unlikely that they will come back uh, nearly as willing as they were before. So wanting to really 
nail that is really paramount. But of course, it's also a matter of building up habits in people's lives and getting them all the way to as successful as they possibly can be. And that is probably by definition not going to happen in one single sitting or within a couple minutes. And by definition, that that would also require getting people to come back into your product. And a lot of the onboarding-centric product design patterns like tooltip tours or things like that that I've been mentioning uh, can't get people back into your product because they are in your product to begin with. And so you need to go find people where they are and entice them back in. And the two major ones that I've seen to to do that are notifications within like a mobile app or something along those lines, and also especially lifecycle emails. What I really find to be the hallmark of quality design and onboarding in particular is uh, well, let me let me rephrase. W- when I find that the the quality of the onboarding experience tends to be maybe not very well considered or thought out, a lot of times it's really clear that there's kind of the core use of the product, and then completely separate from that, there's another interface that's been like slapped on after the fact. Um, that a lot of times is like pointing out areas where the uh, the product team realizes that the product might not be super intuitive or or very obvious in in how it's guiding people. People to do the important things that people need to do. And so uh, what I find to be one of the biggest hallmarks, if not like the hallmark of quality onboarding, is to blur the lines between the core use of your product and the introduction of your product to the point where people can't really differentiate between the two. Everything feels like one cohesive experience. And so in the same way, I use this metaphor where it is, of course, important to design for your core use in the same way, like if you were designing a plane, the primary use of it would be to fly. But at the same time, if you're only designing it for that, then you wouldn't include a door because you don't need doors to fly and you wouldn't include wheels because you don't need wheels to fly. But if you have a plane that you can't get into and can't get off the ground, then it's basically as valuable as no plane at all. And so the idea of uh, developing the entire experience from the beginning and and starting your designing where your users start their using and going forward from there is really, really crucial to me. If you can't get people through the first five minutes of your product, it really doesn't matter all the other amazing features that you might be working on because for the people who aren't making it there, they basically don't even exist. And so that's really what I look for for high-quality onboarding and high-quality product design in general. So I think we can all agree that we want to help our users make progress in their lives. After all, if we can't do that, our products simply won't survive. So whether you're building an onboarding flow from scratch or redesigning your existing flow, where do you start? Casey Winters, currently the growth advisor in residence at Greylock Partners, previously led growth efforts at Pinterest and Grubhub. And he believes this starts with identifying two key measures for your product, your frequency target and your key action. I'll let Casey explain from here. So for frequency, what I always tried to figure out is what is the offline analog to this product? So for Grubhub, it was you know calling a restaurant on the phone and ordering food. Mm-hmm. So we researched how often people did that. And people were doing it once or twice a month on average. So we said, okay, our frequency target at first should be monthly. For Pinterest, it was very similar. It's like, what is the offline action that Pinterest replacing? The most close thing is browsing a magazine, which are monthly subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, it's probably a monthly thing here. Right. So it's that idea of no new consumption, basically. Right. Long term, you want to increase the consumption from whatever the offline analog is. But to start, you just want to understand what the baseline is that you're trying to replace. So that's usually my – and look, that can be an online product as well if you're trying to replace right. uh, an online product. But in those two cases, we were really trying to replace what people were doing offline. In terms of the key action, that's a little harder. 
So what I like to think about is what is something someone does on your product that indicates they received value? For Grubhub, that's pretty easy. They order food, so they have to transact mm-hmm. to get value. So that's the key metric. For Pinterest, it was a little bit harder. So there are multiple ways that people can get value. They can just browse a bunch of images and think that's valuable. They can save things and, and find clearly if they save something, something we showed them was valuable to them. Or they can click to the source of the content. And as we looked at those three things, oh, clicks can be gamed by clickbait. It's hard to understand if when people are scrolling through a lot of images, is that's because they like seeing them all or if it's because they can't find what they want, so they continue going. So repin actually, the save functionality, most correlated. It was the easiest to understand that, yeah, the person definitely is receiving value if they do this, and it correlated the best with long-term retention when we did our correlations. So then what you have to do is test that hypothesis to see if you try and push people towards saving things, do they actually retain better? So our first experiment was basically forcing everyone to repin. Mm -hmm. That did not work. (laughs) And then the second set of experiments was around educating people on how to repin and the value of a repin. And that did actually increase the activation and retention for the business. One problem I know that you faced with Pinterest, as all discovery tools face, and maybe not so much with Grubhub where someone's like, i just trying to figure out how to get pizza to my house as quickly as possible. But with something like Pinterest or productivity tools like a Trello or an Airtable, you got to be able to paint a picture for people so they're not just sitting there staring at a blank page wondering what to do next and then leave and never come back. So I know you guys toyed with all sorts of things there at Pinterest, but how do you strike a balance between showing people value as quickly as possible, but then also not creating so many steps that it weighs the user down and you lose them along the way? Right. My basic philosophy here is you want to get the person to product value as fast as possible, but not faster. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if you need to understand something about the person to be able to show them value, ask for that, but don't ask for a ton of things that you may not use before you show them the product, because then they might drop off the product before they even see what the real product Mm -hmm. is. So for Pinterest, we need to know what you're interested in to be able to show you value. Because the the goal of the product is to show you things that you're interested in and get you to do those things in real life. So at first, we asked you to follow people that shared your interest. And then you would see what things they're pinning. And eventually we switched to, okay, well, just what topics do you care about? And we'll show you the best content in those topics. And that worked pretty well. Pinterest is always seeing if there's a better way to do that. To get stickier. To, yeah, to get stickier, just to connect people to the value even faster. And we tried things where it's like, oh, you pick that topic, here are a bunch of subtopics. Pick from those. And then that added too much friction to getting to the value, which is why there's only pick a topic, you're in the product, here's a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, we tried going deeper, but it was too much friction and it didn't work. But yeah, for Grubhub, didn't need onboarding at all, right? It's like you search... You see a bunch of menus, it's pretty clear, you can order the food online, there's basically no education at all, and you just go. And hey, if you got a product like that, it's great, you can skip this entire part of the funnel. But for Pinterest, it was the most important part of growing the business. Of course, in that Grubhub model, you then have a whole middle variable controlling whether or not the user is satisfied by using the product. Right. Is the food good? Did it come on time? All of those things play a big role. Right. So I imagine as you're signing up for products yourself, whether you mean to or not, you're probably evaluating these experiences. Is there anything, like, do you have pet peeves as you're signing up for a product yourself that you just see over and over and you're like, why do product companies keep doing this? Or anything you've run into lately that excites you? Yes. So the the most common problem I see 
is that I sign up for a product and it just dumps me into something that's like empty and I have no idea what to do that or what the product state. is for. Yeah, so the empty state is a huge problem. Yeah, or the cold start. Mm. And I just don't know what to do. And it's like, I feel like I'm an expert in this and I don't know what to do. How is the average user going to know what to do here? So that's generally the most common problem I see. The other thing that unnerves me is when I get like a book to read in front of the product. I just want to get into the product and have you contextually educate me on what I need to care about at this particular moment. Not tell me like 10 screens, which probably, by the way, most people are just like skipping through as fast as possible and then expect me to get everything. So I prefer more of the in-product contextual education than kind of a, a user manual before I even see the product. No matter what aspect of your onboarding you're currently trying to improve, one place of continual focus has to be your user's very first impression with your product. What do their first 15 to 30 seconds look like? What do they see? How are you capturing and holding their attention? Adobe Creative Cloud CPO Scott Belsky calls this your product's first mile. And here, joined again by my teammate Jeffrey, he reminds product builders why they simply can't lose sight of new users. The underlying psychology that motivated me to write that, but also to think about this with a lot of the teams I work with, is that really, once someone comes to your product, downloads it, signs up, joins or engages, you know, and, and follows someone that does a few key things that shows them the longer term potential of your product in their life, you're golden. I mean, that's that's all about keeping someone engaged and, you know, and, and, and building a roadmap for the coming years of features to better, you know, serve the customer and everything else. And that's actually where our teams, everyone spends the majority of their time but that's further down the funnel from what customers go through initially, that first smile of what does the tour look like? What is the copy? What is the onboarding process like? What questions are you asking or aren't you asking? And what's the default? What do you see first? What's the first action? And how are you oriented around why you're there and what you're going to do next? And that is actually really what matters for a successful product. Because again, it's easier to get someone to give you faith in the roadmap once they're further than that. But to get that far is where most companies struggle. Now, in ultimate irony, that first mile of the user's experience tends to be the last mile of the team's experience when it comes to building the product. It's really towards the end where people say, oh, like, what should we have our tour be? And what copies should we slap in there? And, oh, like, let's just use the form fields that we think are logical. And so it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's all about that first mile. The other psychological undertone there is my conviction that in the first 15 to 30 seconds of every new customer's experience of a product, they are lazy, vain, and selfish. They're lazy in the sense that they're not willing to take time to read or learn anything. They're vain in the sense that, gosh, you know, life is short. I'm busy. If I'm going to engage in this new thing, it better make me look good. If it's an enterprise product, it better make me look good to my colleagues. If it's a personal product, it better make me look good to my friends um, or professionally online or whatever. And then selfishness is even if this product is something that helps my team be more productive or is good for the world or is good for a political movement or something else I believe in, at the end of the day, for the first 15 to 30 seconds, I want to make sure that this product solves one of my problems now. And it's one of these grounding things that we must realize as product makers, which is that we can't believe that people will have a relationship with us 
until they get through that 30 seconds. We can't sell them on the long-term vision or get them to invite all these people to make it worth their while. It just needs to serve them now. And so I think when you when you ground the decisions you make in the product in that first mile of the product experience for the user, for a new user, it's just important to remember this, you know, and, and it, it, it triggers things like, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't tell them or even show them. Maybe we should just do it for them with a template, you know, with a, with a default field completed. You know, it's little things like that that you start to think about differently. Well, I certainly think that products like Instagram, you know, I've certainly figured this out, products that have proven that they can break through that, you know, 500 million user ceiling. Um, but in terms of new products, you know, like some of the messaging products like Telegram and others have really had a very smooth onboarding. Slack, I think, is especially good at this. They even think about little things like the magic link as opposed to the password because they realize that new users, the second time they come back, they don't remember their password. But a magic link sounds great. You know, so it's, I think it's little things like that that they've done well that we can all learn from. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One place where you'll want to constantly experiment with your onboarding is with your copy. You should always be searching for ways to be more clear, direct, and convincing with the language that you use in the limited time you can get in front of your customers. It's ultimately how you'll convince them, wherever they are in their life cycle, to take that all-important next step. Joanna Weeb, co-founder of Copy Hackers, is regularly working one-on-one with companies to write persuasive copy that converts. Here, she walks us through a particularly interesting case study with Wistia, the video hosting service, where she was able to nudge trialists into paying customers. We did this with Wistia, actually, and I wrote about it on the Copy Hackers blog. We tested eight onboarding emails. So they have... Um, and this is surely something that the intercom audience will oh, relate sure, to, yeah. <laughs> right? You have these onboarding emails that you send out and they have three sequences that are triggered based on different activities that you do. And so we worked on the third triggered sequence and it's eight emails that are triggered and they're designed. This whole sequence is like it comes at the end of the trial in most cases and it's where you're trying to move people to go from 
trial user to paying customer. So those are my favorite places to optimize. They're usually a good way to get a real read on whether what you're doing is going to move people um, or not. Mm. Uh, because at the end of the day, they have to actually give you your credit card or they don't give you your credit card, their credit card. And then, um, yeah, now you can learn something real. So we tested these eight emails against their control. And all we do, it was a basic rewrite, right? We just looked at their emails. This was not like intense, crazy work. It's like what a lot of copywriters would do when they go in, when they're hired on their first day. And it's like, okay, well, we don't know what to do with you yet. So just go like rewrite these emails. Um, so that was essentially what it came down to was it was an exercise anybody could do right now where you sit down, you assess the emails, and then you basically just rewrite them with different strategies, like more copywriting techniques in mind, like using problem agitation solution or a framework like that to rewrite each email. So we looked at these emails, we kept the message largely the same, but we just changed the way that message was being expressed. Um, that often meant, well, uh, so seven out of the eight emails that we tested were two to five times as long as the control. So we had longer copy, not for the sake of longer copy. We weren't long isn't doesn't work just because it's long. It works when you actually say things that make people feel something and draw them in. So you have to allow yourself to use more words or we allowed ourselves to use more words, which was very uncomfortable for the Wistia team, understandably. And they're totally open about that. They're genius marketers. So like, they're like, no, that's cool. We can take that one. So we had these, you know, eight emails that we tested. They were longer. We removed the videos from them in most cases. And Wistia is a video company. Yeah, so that was also, yeah. un- right? That was uncomfortable for them. <laughs> like, we'll put those back. But we're like, okay, <laughs> we're going to test it. Just wait, we'll test. Um, and we ran the test. And our variation, our eight emails against their eight emails, ours brought in 3.5 times the paid conversion. So a 350% lift, all with statistical confidence and all of that great stuff. So, and it was just a rewrite, right? It's really just looking at your copy and saying, okay, people are actually going to read this. People are busy. Yes, they're busy. So if they're going to take the time to open this email, I want to make sure that I'm hooking them. I want to make sure they know that I'm talking to them in their language. I want to use specifics, like real specifics. And when it comes time for me to actually sell, because these emails at some point have to sell when we get to those emails in the sequence, I want to make sure that we are really zeroing in on a pain and then expressing how Wistia is a solution. So, and that didn't come again from me sitting here. Like the assessment was me like looking at the emails. The copy rewrites came from really listening to what their customers were saying, going on Amazon and doing review mining there. Um, I listened to Chris Savage did a podcast and he talked about um, YouTube. It was early on in Wistia's time when like people were still like, well, why wouldn't I just use YouTube? He said something about like, you expose your video to a world of crass strangers or potentially crass strangers. And I thought that was interesting. And so that kind of turned into the headline for one of the sales emails around, but it was done with a Wistia tone, right? So Wistia has this great personality. When you do something like a problem agitation solution framework, where you open with your prospect's problem, then you agitate it, and then you solve it with your product or service. When I say that, people tend to think like, oh, so I have to do like fear mongering. Like it has to turn into like some, like, I don't think that's good for our brand, but this was fully on brand for Wistia. So, and it's not fear mongering in any way. The headline for one of those emails, the one where I swiped that kind of idea from Chris 
was what's red and unsupported and stuck in the middle of a bunch of crass strangers or something. And then that was like the headline and the answer was like your videos on YouTube. But it was like kind of setting it up with this fun sort of like joke framework, you know, like what's red and white and whatever all over sure. those old jokes, right? Um, so you're you're still playing with something that doesn't feel angry or offensive or defensive or anything, right? Like we are saying Wistia is better than YouTube. But we're saying that in a friendly way that is actually still, though, getting into the problem with YouTube for businesses. Um, So anyway, there's lots to do there with email. I just said a lot about writing emails, um, but hopefully some of that will be helpful. If your business is going to grow, then, of course, you need to acquire and convert users. But if your business is going to survive, well, that only happens if you're able to retain those users. To put it as simple as I can you need to make sure they experience that aha moment with your product regularly and they come back again and again and again. Sean Klaus, today the VP of product at Metro Mile, but best known as the head of growth at Atlassian, knows this well. He helped Atlassian reach 85,000 paying customers, and a big part of that was his belief that when it's time to grow, retention has to be put under the microscope. He joins me live from our 2017 Dreamforce event to explain how activation and retention issues are tied so closely together, and why, like all onboarding components, they must evolve along with our own products and businesses. It just never ceases to amaze me how much time we as an industry spend optimizing our acquisition tactics, right? Like acquiring a huge bunch of people. When you think about that, when you think about all the energy that has gone into this, of understanding who those people are and how to go and find them, and then you look at like the number of people that drop off in the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes, the first day, it always breaks my heart, right? And like even at Atlassian, where I felt like we were getting better and better at this, right? And we had the charts that would show us what was happening. Every one of those people is a person who you have fundamentally burnt, right? Like you, you have failed to give them what, what you told them you would give them just from like a, like a wasted opportunity cost for you as a business, but also like brand damage and everything else that goes with it. So when I think about the ROI of things you can do in a business, making certain that... that that your customer is safely handed from acquisition to the activation, making certain that they are activated and you have done everything in your power in order to make certain they are activated in terms of they have found their aha moment and they have begun habit forming and then making certain that they're getting the maximum value from your software through engagement. Like Those are generally very low investment because they're a problem finding. They're like, you have to find the problems. So they're a search problem and an optimization problem. So they're low investment, but potentially with massive rewards. And the thing is that not only are they rewarding because you keep those users, if you truly succeed at that and you get high engagement at the end of that, then what you really get is sustainable businesses because you get word of mouth, right? People who are highly engaged with your software are always the people who love it, right? And those people who love it will tell other people. And the most authentic form of acquisition by far, all day, every day, is word of mouth, right? And it's amazing the business you can build once you have that uh, engine going. When it comes to retention, again, I, I would emphasize like having an understanding of what your view is of your at your activation loop because your problem is almost always going to be an activation first. So if, if you have $100 and you're starting, I'd be betting like $80 of it uh, in the activation phase because mostly what happens is people fail to have their aha moment and even if they have their aha moment, they drop out before it becomes a habit, right? And so there's a huge amount of value there. 
I guess the tactics that, that I use in that space are like firstly understanding what my drop-off rates are and then kind of watching uh, users in their very first experience and trying to understand, okay, what are the buttons they don't find? What, what are the things they are confused about? And then trying really simple stuff like, you know, a dialogue box saying, these are the things you are probably looking for and three buttons on it, like that lead them in the most likely three places they want to go, right? It's amazing. Like, I've, like we, at Atlassian, we tried all sorts of things. Like we, at one point, we had a 12-step onboarding flow, right? It was deeply involved and it had a whole bunch of things that it taught you and it was very successful. So good for us. And then, but when I talk about Champion Challenger, one of the things we did was that we were constantly trying to beat that and so we later on ended up with an onboarding flow that was called Choose Your Own Adventure. And it literally was what I just described to you. It was one dialog box with three buttons. And it turned out that it outperformed the 12-step program because the 12-step program was trying to tell you enough that you could do the rest, right? But it turns out that most of the people who were arriving in the software wanted to do one of three things, right? So rather than needing to educate them about those three things, about the way in which they could go about thinking about the software and find it, just giving it to them was enough as well, right? And so that's you know some of the really simple stuff you can do in that space. I look at, say, for example, an activation program as a never-ending stream of work. It's fundamentally a champion challenger problem. It's not a, we will solve it and we will ship it and we will be done. And the reason it is is because like, we run hundreds, hundreds of experiments in activation at Atlassian, and the vast majority of them failed, right? But uh, the ones that succeeded, succeeded in such a massive, like, metric-moving way that for the investment versus the reward, it was incredible, right? And there were times when we shipped an onboarding flow and we were like, well, is that the best we can do? And I guess my argument was always like, we will never know until we continue mining this, this seam. And the answer was, we always did better. We always managed to do better. And the second reason that like, clearly you must keep doing this is because your brand promise keeps changing. So the features that you deliver to the market change. And so if your onboarding is static, then you're, again, you will fail to, to meet your promise. Plus just your product itself changes, the way in which its information architecture exists. It's just this constant program of work to try and make certain that you are safely delivering those users from the marketing site into the product and then from their first touch of the product to getting their value and from getting their value to forming a habit and from a habit into high engagement, right? It's that simple. You want to safe hands. Think about the safe hands. To sum all this up, things like a quick webinar invite or a simple UI change to your start state are going to seem small in a vacuum, but all of them represent parts of a system, your user onboarding, that will make or break your product's trajectory. If you got value in this handful of insights, our team at Intercom has published a few more resources that will definitely help you out. For starters, there's our book, Intercom on Onboarding, which shares how we've managed to turn tens of thousands of Intercom signups into happy, successful customers. You can grab a free copy at intercom.com forward slash books. At that very same site, you'll also find our onboarding starter kit, which will help you get your onboarding message campaign off the ground. And of course, there's our blog at insideintercom.com, where we share all our latest thinking on the topic. Hopefully this episode and all of those resources will have you on your way to getting your customers to that aha moment and making sure they never look back. And with that, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.